Hello, everyone, and welcome to Beyond the Surface. My name is Brian Levinson. I created this podcast because I'm very interested in talking to interesting people who are performers. They're everything from CEOs to coaches to athletes to musicians to actors, anyone who considers himself to be a performer and is an expert at their craft. So what we will do is ask questions to dive deep and dig deep into their mindset, into their journey, into their story, what makes them unique, what makes them special, so that hopefully it can help you as you continue on your journey for development and as you go beyond the surface with yourself as well. Today we go beyond the surface with Dimas Chavez. Dimas is a really interesting guy. And I have known his daughter, Dolores, since elementary school. But Dimas' story wasn't something that I was privy to when I was a child. And I've gotten to know him and his family better over the years. So I was really excited to sit down with Dimas. He has a fascinating story. He grew up in New Mexico, barely speaking English for a chunk of his childhood. And he will tell the story about living in Los Alamos, where they were constructing the nuclear bomb and what he got to see while he was surrounded by people that were helping to create a massive invention that has changed the world. And Dimas will also talk about his journey from Los Alamos to college and then also to eventually working in the CIA. So he will give an interesting perspective into what it's like to live in some ways a double life when he is at work. And he doesn't get too much into specifics, but he gives us a little taste of some of the stuff he was working on in the CIA. And he has been there all along throughout our history. Uh, He's 80 years old now, so he's seen a lot of interesting things happen in the U.S. and has really seen it from the inside to the outside. Uh, Dimas will also talk about adversity, an adversity that he faced as a child, uh, some racism that he faced as a child, and just challenges that he had and how he overcame those challenges and how he overcame adversity throughout his life to be a successful father, a successful grandfather, a successful husband, and also successful at his craft. So when I think about a performer, I think of someone who worked in the CIA as the top of that list and as someone who had to have a certain type of mindset to handle some difficult situations and some challenging situations throughout his life. You're going to enjoy Dimas. He's a storyteller. Uh, He really enjoys people and relationships. I think that will come across in our conversation today. So without further ado, I'm pleased to welcome Dimas Chavez to the Beyond the Surface podcast. So Dimas, why don't you start by just telling me about your upbringing? What was it like? I know I think you grew up in New Mexico. Correct. So tell me a little bit about life in New Mexico, Certainly. childhood. I was uh, raised in a ranching farming community, a uh, majority of the population ethnically uh, Mexican-American, and the name of the town is uh, Torreon, T-O-R-R-E-O-N. And it's located roughly about 70 miles uh, east of Albuquerque. And uh, my father, one of 12 helped my grandfather run three ranches where they ran sheep. Time out. Father, one of 12. Yeah. Uh, did he talk about what that was like? And, and, and then I want to know how many siblings you had and see how many, well, how that I, got passed I, down. I, 
Uh, let's see. Two of the older ones uh, passed away before I knew, before I came along. Uh, ranching accidents, things of that nature. Um, my dad is the fourth oldest, I believe, if I remember correctly. Uh, and older than he is my uncle Carlos. Um, so when World War II broke out, <clears throat> uh, the majority of the young men in our community, of course, they went off to war. And, uh, and then we also had a drought at that point. So a lot of the animals lost their weight and value. But my father and his older brother, uh, my uncle Carlos, were given what's called a deferma from having to go into active duty uh, because of the ranch and uh, having to take care of the crops and so forth. Um, and then when all that failed, um, everybody just started kind of leaving the community of Tokyo and people went to California, uh, people went to Albuquerque, uh, seeking whatever kind of employment they could find. So your dad grew up in that same town? Yes. Uh, he, he was actually born in a little town, a, a ranching town, not far from Torreon, by the name of Willard. Uh, my mother was born in Torreon. My mother was a Chavez before she married, so I'm a pure Chavez Chavez. That's amazing. <laughs> uh, but all So of both of their families were American... They were both raised in America. That's correct. Were there, you said there was a largely Mexican-American town. Were their parents from Mexico and came over? No, you'd have to go way back, Brian. And I, you know, unfortunately, I feel bad about this. I don't know just exactly where, uh, ancestry-wise, uh, the folks came in from Mexico uh, and, my, and then migrated on up. Uh, New Mexico... As you may know from your history, did not get admitted into statehood. Uh, it was the 47th state back in 1916, something like that. But uh, as I said, it's, uh, the drought and uh, the war and so many negatives, uh, Dad uh, then took a job driving a dump a truck or some sort, like a dump truck, I don't remember exactly what, between uh, Albuquerque and Arizona. So we found ourselves living in Albuquerque for a, a bit of time. What age were you? When I'm you were probably about five or six, somewhere in that neighborhood. And you have siblings? Siblings? Yes, I am the oldest of five. Uh, the second uh, born, Dolores, who we named our daughter after, was born with Down syndrome. And she... Uh, Lived until she was about uh, 26 years old, and she died from pancreatic cancer. The third oldest, uh, uh, Ignacio, uh, he only lived for 15 months. Uh, and we didn't have uh, good medical facilities and so forth there in the, in the ranch, and uh, he developed uh, dysentery, fever, etc., and he passed away from that. So you grew up with both of those challenges early oh, yeah. in your childhood. How did that help shape you as a well, child it, it, or as an it, it, adult? It really helped a lot, but it didn't happen until a little later and unknown to me because uh, from Albuquerque, uh, Dad was trying to find himself, you know, what am I going to do with this? Uh, he's still a young man, but all he's known all his life is ranching. And then they were building a hospital in Santa Fe, um, which is the capital of New Mexico. And he applied and he, and he got the job. And it was just labor, nothing really specialist. And we found ourselves all of a sudden living in Santa Fe, in just a small one-room shack. I remember 
very, very well. And there is where things sort of started coming into uh, development in my mind as to, whoops, well, I've got a challenge because up until then, I didn't know English. I didn't, I'd never spoken the word of English. So your town, most of the people in the town spoke Spanish? Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. So here we are in Santa Fe, and uh, my mother and father enrolled me in, I remember this clearly, they enrolled me in uh, kindergarten. They're in, 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 not far from where we were living, small little room that my father and mother rented. And it was uh, my father, my mother, Dolores, and myself at that time, because my brother Ignacio had already passed away. And why, why I will always remember kindergarten is I remember one day we were in the class, and there was one other Spanish-speaking girl uh, who knew just a little more English than I did that sat to my left. And to this day, I still remember my kindergarten teacher. Her name was Ms. Nicholson. And I had to go to the bathroom badly. And, uh, and I would notice that people would raise their hand and they'd stand up and they'd say something and then they would be excused and I could see them walking off towards the direction of the restrooms. So I poked this young lady and I spoke to her in Spanish and I said, I, I really need to use the bathroom. How do you say it? She said, I don't know. <laughs> so I just couldn't hold it any longer. So I threw my hand up. I had no idea what I was going to say. Uh, and I, at this point, Brian, I, I pause. I don't know if you ever watched the Johnny Carson show or not, but many, many years ago, Johnny Carson had sort of a, an, an all-Hispanic Mexican uh, grouping that he picked his car and forgot a real Mexican name. And Ricardo Montalban is the one that I remember. And they were talking to him about you know what it was like for him when he came over from Mexico to California to become an actor and so forth. And he said that English to him sounded like a bunch of dogs barking. Now, I, 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 I lean on that momentarily because when I threw my hand up and everybody became very quiet and they said, you know, the strange one is going to talk. Because no one had ever heard me open my mouth, mainly because I didn't know what to say. So when the teacher somewhat acknowledged me, I could tell by she was looking at me, I stood up. And I just started making noises. I had no idea what I was talking about. I ran back, back, you know. And I was saying things like what English sound sounded like to me. So everybody just started laughing, including the teacher. And I really, really felt bad. So I sat down and I wet my pants. And shortly after that, it was recess, so everybody was going outside. So I kind of waited, waited. And then I kind of snuck out the door, and everybody saw the big wet spot, and they started laughing at me and throwing dirt on me, and it was clean on where I was wet and so forth. And I just remember I took off running towards where we lived, crying my eyes out. And uh, <clears throat> got home, and Mom just always had a wake up to kind of calm me down. She says, don't worry, son, we're, we're going to fix this. I always remember those words. Not long after that, my father comes home and says, I've been offered a job, but I can't tell you anything about it because they wouldn't tell me anything about it. He went to a strange office in Santa Fe, New Mexico, 109 Palace Avenue. And this is where they were primarily recruiting all workers to go to Los Alamos, which at the time 
was the most secret city in the world. This is where the atomic bomb was being developed, designed, and so forth. So Dad said that they have to do a lot of background checking and this and that. He didn't know much at all. Now, my father certainly didn't go to Los Alamos as a scientist. He went there as a heavy-duty operator, working machinery, driving caterpillars and stuff like that. So he got the go-ahead sign, and uh, lo and behold, here we are. We're packing up, and we're going to Los Alamos in my dad's 1939 Chevy Coupe. And by this time, my sister Nora had just been born on July 31st. uh, 1943. In Before you go on, I'm just, I just want to understand. So you're in kindergarten, you get embarrassed. Uh, you have a sister that has Down syndrome yeah. and a brother who, who passed right. early. There's some serious trauma oh, no, there. So. How, yeah. did you, how did you handle that as a boy? Was there anger? Was there... It was confusion, primarily, because what relaxed me most of all was in being in Torreón were the animals and being around people that I could understand because everybody spoke Spanish. I spoke Spanish. And then all of a sudden being thrown into an environment where I didn't know anything and, everything, and people were different and they were talking and I didn't know what they were talking about. It was just a very fast-paced, moving movie that was going on in my head and I didn't know what in the heck was going on but then like I say here we were living in this shack and we it was a communal bathroom and men women you know on a certain day men would go and use the bathroom and shower other you know the women so here dad is announced we're on our way up to Los Alamos and we occupied a log cabin which used to belong to the caretakers of a boys ranch that occupied Los Alamos in the early years before the government took over. So here we are. We arrived August the 15th of 1943 into Los Alamos. And I have no idea what we're doing there. It was infiltrated with military personnel carrying guns and there were fences there were tanks, there were all sorts of things surrounding the little community of Los Alamos. And the only way you could live in Los Alamos was if you were working there and if you had a, a security clearance, uh, which my father had gotten by that time. And you're how old at this point? I'm, I'm six years old. You're still, this is kindergarten, from yeah. kindergarten. So I'm six years old. And then my father takes me to Central School, which was the only school in Los Alamos, K through 12, there were probably about a total of 300 students from kindergarten through high school. And I started my first day of, of school there. So I remember my first grade teacher, Ms. Quinlan. And there, some additional confusion comes in because uh, we're all reading our weekly reader. And we're talking about Dick, Jane, and Spot and the bouncing red ball and all that sort of stuff. And I had no idea what was going on, none whatsoever. And Miss Quinlan, God bless her, she she understood, or she visualized, she realized, you know, that I was in a world of total confusion. So she would keep me after school, and kind of tutor me a little. But the person who really brought me forth was my mother, greatest cook you could ever know. <laughs> Marion shadowed her time to time when I was traveling, just so she could pick up some of her little uh, cooking uh, gems that she had. 
the great scientist wives, right? we're talking about super scientists that came from Europe, uh, they had nothing to do during the daytime because their husbands were all in a hush-hush environment developing this, uh, people thought they were making uh, windshield wipers or submarines or something. People didn't know what in the world was going on in this secret uh, little community uh, located at 7,400 feet elevation in the canyons up there. And when they would walk by our home, they would smell this lovely aroma. So they knocked on the door, and Mom and Pop had a little more command of the English language than I did. And basically, they wanted to know, what is that wonderful aroma? So my mother, sixth grade education, she only went to the sixth grade. My father went to the ninth grade. My mother says, uh, well, I'll tell you what, I would be delighted to teach you how to make a variety of things that she informed them on, if you could help my son. I said, well, sure, what do, we, what do you want us to do? So she told them about my issue, and I didn't want to speak or write or understand English and what have you. So I was instructed to come home right after school, and there were these ladies waiting for me. Eminent scientists, uh, wives of eminent scientists, and so forth. Uh, I remember one of them, Miss Lois Bradbury, her husband went on to become the second director of the laboratory in Los Alamos. Uh, and she had three three boys that I grew up with. But uh, they would sit down with me and uh, they would walk me through the ABCs and the one, two, threes, and so on and so forth. So your mom was someone, I go back to the story when you came home. Uh, in kindergarten, and she said, we'll fix this. Yeah. And that, that, that notion of fixing something, there's a quick story I'll tell you, which is the Blue Angels. Oh, yeah. Um, they are really self-critical. So what they do is they wake up in the morning, they go over their flight plan, uh, and then they go fly, and they watch film on what they did right and what they did wrong. And they go around the circle, and each person has to talk about what they messed up on. Critique the and other. They have to, and they have to critique themselves which is even harder, right? So they'll have to say, you know, when I was walking out to the plane, I really was a little quick with my left foot. Or, you know, once we got airborne, I thought we were going left, but I thought we were going right, and I just got a little mixed up. And at the end of it, they say two things. They say, I'm going to fix it. They say, I'll fix it, and I'm glad to be here. So they take accountability, right? They're going to fix the issue. And then they always say, and I'm glad to be here. I'm grateful to be a Blue Angel. Uh, so I, I just think about that story. No, I like that. I like that very much because it's remind, it reminds me because of the same situation that the, the, the individuals, these ladies were there, uh, and they would listen to me talk. Now, you know, I had a tremendous accent, uh, as an example, uh, and most Spanish-speaking people do, with the word butter. Butter is what they, they say, butter. So I, I had those types of words. That would come out. The normal pronunciation is fix it. Mm, to fix it, you know, and so forth. So, and I remember they saying, "We're going to work on that. We're going to fix that." And I always recall what my mother, you know, told me back when I was in kindergarten, Santa Fe, we'll take care of that. We'll fix it. So, so she was the fixer. What was Dad? Was Dad the worker? Was Dad, Dad was a worker? <clears throat> Dad was. Uh, he was uh, the guy that uh, put food on the table and. Kept us uh, clothed and so forth. He, uh, he he worked hard, extremely hard. Uh, didn't get a whole lot of pay for it, 
but uh, then again, he wasn't a very well-educated man either. But at that period of time, though, uh, they weren't looking for PhDs. They needed people who operate caterpillars and so forth to uh, break the ground and build laboratories and so forth. And everything went very quickly because of the war. So they worked around the clock. And Dad was constantly working. Did you have an appreciation for dad's work ethic at a oh, young age? Or were you, were you upset that he wasn't? No, no, no. Because coming from a ranch, you work hard. You, know, you, you don't have an eight to five job. A ranch, uh, being raised on a ranch and on a farm, you, you were just, you're constantly working. And it's 24 7. And you said there was a shack uh, in, before you moved. Where did you guys, what was the setup like when you moved? Uh, to Los Alamos. Okay, well, like I stated, we uh, took over an old log cabin that once belonged to the caretaker from the boys' ranch. And uh, it was just a small two... Well, the the big feature that swept me away was that we had indoor plumbing. Yeah. Up to that point, we had outdoor toilets. Up to that point, we had we had to bring in water from a well outside, so we didn't have any indoor welling. We had electricity, so everything was by lantern and what have. This is on a ranch. We took a bath once a week in a huge old tub in front of a wood-burning stove that Mom would fire up and warm with water on top of the stove. And that stained stove, she would put these big old hot irons that she would put on there, and she would iron the clothes with that. Uh, she got one of the first motorized Maytag washing machines that had, it's just like similar to a motor that you see on a lawnmower. And, and she would wrap that cord around, fire it up, throw this exhaust thing outside the door so all the fumes would be outside. And, oh, my God, did that thing make a racket. So, Dimas, I, I understood, like, you had trouble with language at an early age and, and learning English. But your memory for these things, it's so vivid. Is that something you've always been able to do is the, yes. use, their, use your memory? And, yes. And yes. I would imagine that that helped you once you did pick up the language with learning and, and becoming well, educated. And, and, and <laughs> it's interesting that you should uh, point that out because people who have known me uh, since I was a little boy have always marveled in my memory. But they, and they ask me why, and it always takes me back to when I was a young boy with these ladies. Now, when I come back tomorrow, I want you to remember X, Y, and Z, you know. Or you I, had to. And I would just worry about this. So I would just be laying in bed at night, okay, uh, one and one is two, and two and two is four. I'd do all sorts of things to help me memorize those kinds of things. Uh, and, and then I just constantly <clears throat> challenge my brain to be able to have that kind of recall. And for some reason or other, it has just followed me through, and it has done me so well because I, I can vividly picture and recall a lot of highlights of my life and just historically of things that have happened during my life. So take me to the educational piece because you said, mom, you know, sixth grade education, dad, ninth grade education. What was your educational process? And, and just walk me through what that well, was. Well, the educational process was one that I uh, uh, realized in the very, very early stages that I was never going to go to college. Now, that's a heck of a statement to make uh, when you're only on the fourth or fifth or sixth grade. But you had that realization then? I had that realization age. then for a variety of things because I just not, did not think I was ever smart enough. We had very few people in our family that finished high school. So if I finished high school, I was going to be a milestone. College? Forget about it. 
And are you at school with other kids who are thinking of that? Because you are at you're, I'm assuming you're at school with kids that whose family members are scientists. Exactly. So tell me about that. So well, okay. The bar was set very high, and it was extremely uh, uh, overwhelming for me, uh, overpowering for me to try to to try to stay up with the with these jets. You know, I was just a, an old prop plane trying to keep up with these guys and gals. Uh, and yeah, the, it, it was difficult because, uh, and then I can remember the teachers would call us and say, okay, uh, Joe, stand up. And, uh, and what does your father do? Well, my father's a physicist and he does this and that. And this, and, you know, so people would go, well, my father, by this period of time, he's got himself a job with uh, water and sewage, uh, which was the Zia company in Los Alamos. There was two organizations that primarily kept Los Alamos going. There was the Los Alamos National Laboratory where all the brains and so forth worked and developed all the nuclear weaponry and so on. And then there was Zia that employed all of the carpenters, the painters, the fixer-uppers and what have you, electricians, and that was where my father worked. And my father primarily worked with the uh, water situation because we had artesian wells that had been dug below where we lived in Los Alamos, and they were pumped up through these very huge pipes to provide us fresh water up in Los Alamos. So my, I basically uh, advanced my father intellectually and <laughs> educationally, and so when it would come my turn, my father was a water pump engineer. <laughs> and because everybody else was, a, he's a doctor, he's an engineer, he's that's my life. I had to get pop something, you know. <laughs> so that, so he, he became a water pump engineer. Uh, mom was just a, a, a you know, stay-at-home mom, uh, God bless her, taking care of me, uh, Lenora. And then in 1947, uh, my brother came along, the youngest, Anthony. So she had her hands full, and Pop was constantly working, like I say, 24-7. Um, so you're in high school with these kids who are – intellectually stimulated they are intelligent their access to books and reading they're and all that they're all that see and i didn't know how to study yeah. i had no idea but i was a very poor student so how did you find your way well it was just through trial and error uh basically primarily defeating myself first of all and what I mean by that is saying you're not you've got limitations, Demas. You can only go so far. So don't try to, you know, overload the alligator mouth when you got to work a well ass. <laughs> so you just you know you have to know your limitations and don't try to be. In Spanish, we have a term uh, facetón, and that means someone who is very show off, someone who you know really, really tries to impress other people by his or her education and what the. We always refer to them as facetones. Uh, and it's a negative connotation. It's a negative connotation. And so I always knew that there was a limit. You, and don't go beyond that or else you're going to get lost. You're going to get beat up. You're going to get found out. And you're going to fail and you're going to fall on your face. So, so some fear of failure playing, playing a role there. Constantly. Failure was always in my mind. That, uh, God, can Did I dad play? also instill that in you? Like. Do your job, stay in your lane. Was that was that being passed down? That, that, and you, you're using quite a, a, a neat term. Uh, he always said, "Always run in your own lane. Don't yeah. don't, don't don't get in front of those fast runners because they'll run right over you. Sure. Only face yourself." So, in some senses, because he had to do that to survive, right? Yeah. Like he had to just put my head down, 
go to work every day, don't ask questions, do your job, make the paycheck, get my food, you know, money for my family. But well, the, the, the thing that that entered, uh, and unfortunately, uh, there's still some of it, is, uh, <clears throat> well, Solomon's had more than his fair share of Archibongers. We had uh, a lot of folks that came in from Oklahoma and Texas who were known for their outward racism against blacks, Native Americans, and Mexicans. And they did not hide it. And Father, uh, he got uh, passed over several times for positions, just merely because of the fact that uh, he was Mexican-American, his last name was Chavez, etc., etc. So we went through a lot of that. And I can remember going with my mother to the PX, or to the commissary for groceries, and I can remember that uh, they would acknowledge, yes, uh, how can I help you? And mom and her broken English were trying to say something. Uh, we'll get back to you later. Uh, try to make up your mind what you want, you know. And it was just so rude, and I felt so sorry for her and so on, you know. And, but she had that smile. She never lost that smile. She said, okay, patience, patience. Did you feel discrimination in high school? Like, did oh, you no, feel I, that? I felt it before then. Mm. I felt it in grade school. I felt it in high school. Uh, in grade school, I can remember what few birthday parties that I got invited to. My cake and ice cream was uh, served to me outside. There was a lot of very blatant uh, discrimination then. Uh, people just didn't hold back on it whatsoever. Uh, and did that cause anger? Because I'm hearing like, so now I've got like being made fun of, bullied, whatever you want to call it, you know, that experience. And now like this blatant inequality... Uh, was there no anger there? Was oh, there... there was a tremendous amount of anger. There was a lot of anger that I kept in inside, and then I would talk to my mother and my father about it, and uh, Dad would say, it's just something that you have to overcome mm. uh, and show them you're better than they are. But select something that can be dem- demonstrated. Don't just say you're better. So you use very craft-oriented, you know, excel in your lane. You, you know, that, that was sort of the message. And then Mom was doing things with a certain grace, or a certain class. And she was, yeah. With also, we're going to find a solution when something is wrong, we are going to fix it. Yeah. Was optimist? Was she an optimist? Oh, very much so. Yeah. Both of them were. My mother more so than my father, but uh, they, they always looked at a brighter side. Uh, <clears throat> and mom was extremely religious. Uh, both, uh, we were raised uh, in a strong Catholic background. Uh, and mother always, always, you know, fell back on, on religion and so forth. Uh, and it, 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 you know, kind of rubbed off on the rest of us uh, in the family as well. But through high school, things kind of started getting a little better. Uh, I found out that I had what's called a personality. And uh, so through high school, uh, I, I had a lot of good friends, tremendous good friends. And lo and behold, the majority of them were not Hispanic, were not Mexican. And also to this very day, as we're seated here, I still communicate with some of them. So you realize in high school, I can be social, yeah. I can connect with people. Yeah. There's now a human component. Uh, is that different from mom and dad? Is it, that- was, it, it was different from them because their charge was a little different than mine. Their future, had we remained in Torreon, you know, and had I remained in Torreon, your future was already there. You were going to go to maybe, maybe finish high school, and then you'd get married and have a house full of kids, and you'd become a rancher, and you'd drive the tractor, and you'd take your cattle, 
and blah blah blah, you know. So your life was already there. So now you're getting what I would call the American dream. <laughs> there's there's now a some pinch you're probably around other people who have dreams and aspirations. Right. So high school, you're connecting right. with them. I would imagine there's an awakening that's occurring for you so, uh, neurologically. True, true. Um, so, so high so school. So I'm, I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm a senior in high school, and I uh, get uh, chosen class favorite in 12th grade. I get chosen pep club sweetheart, which was a big thing. Uh, I was very, very active in sports. I was going to ask, what sports? Soccer? Uh, 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 no, uh, we didn't. Never no heard, soccer. Never heard of soccer. No soccer. It was pure uh, football, basketball, and swimming. Wow. Yeah, that was the primary. Uh, and you played all three of those I nice? All three of them, lettered in all three of them. And, uh, and that was kind of our way of uh, showing, you know, because the majority of the good athletes, believe it or not, in northern New Mexico are Hispanic. Or at least they were during my period of time. And I read the website from Los Alamos. I still have a love and an interest in Los Alamos. And I always watch the sports and I see where the majority of the same athletes are Hispanic. <laughs> so, so you find an identity, a personality, as you said, in high school. And you also use sports as a way of connecting with others. And precisely. you start to develop camaraderie, competitiveness, yep. dreaming, right. uh, elements that I would argue is there is an American spirit to all of those. But eventually some of that stuff uh, comes out in reality to the fact that you can't do sports and all this on your life, so you have to be something. So I now take you to my senior year in high school, and I can remember them telling us that we're having a senior day, and there's going to be a variety of universities coming here, and, uh, and they're going to be wanting to recruit you to go to college. I had no interest because, first of all, I was in the lower 25th percentile of my class, academically. Uh, in fact, in my senior year, I don't mind sharing this at all, Steve Dunning, whose name I will never forget, was my English teacher. And he said, Dimas, I'd like her to talk to your mother and father. I said, what about? He said, never mind, we'll talk about it when they get here. So I made this announcement when I went home, and Dad and Davey got concerned, and, but Dad couldn't take off. So can you find out if just Mom can go? And then, of course, Mom had to find somebody to take care of Dolores, who was my sister with Down syndrome, and a brother and sister, another brother and sister. So uh, Mom said, okay, we'll go. So we went. Sat down after, after classes were over, and Mr. Dunning looks at my mother, she says, Mrs. Chavez, I strongly recommend that you withhold or hold back your son from graduating because his English just isn't good enough. He hasn't got a good command of the English language. He doesn't know how to read, read properly, write properly, express blah, 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 blah. So I, that hit me like a ton of bricks. All my friends that I had grown up with they were all graduating. And for me not to graduate with them, I mean, that would have killed me. And mom immediately sensed that this really stuck a knife in my back. And she said, and then Mr. Dunning says to her, but Mrs. Chavez, it's up to you. I mean, he is barely on the bar where he can graduate. So I can't say because of that that he shouldn't, but I'm, I'm, I'm pleading with you uh, as his mother uh, to hold him back because he's not ready. 
So she looked at me, and in Spanish, in front of Mr. Dunning, she spoke to me, <laughs> and basically said, well, what do you think? You want to, you want to, and I said, Mom, there's nothing more that I want than to graduate with my friends and, uh, and be the first Chavez to graduate from high school. So she looked at Mr. Dice and says, uh, I made up my mind. I want my son to graduate on June 2nd, 1955. Long risk. Yeah, he was doing that to try to help. He was doing that. Well, or, what do you think it was? If he was, he didn't express it. Okay. It wasn't a, it, it, I believe it, that he can do better. Yeah, it was no, that. None, of, not that, good none of that. It was just negativism, negativism, negativism. Interesting. He, she, and you, you bring up a good point, Brian. He didn't point out to say, Mrs. Chavez, if we hold back your son, he'll have a much better opportunity yeah. uh, upon graduation. His diction, his English, his blah, 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 he'll com- his command of this and that will be, uh, uh, it will empower him to become a much better citizen and so on and so forth. It's so, it's so interesting to me because we think of the teachers that inspire us and tell us that they believe in us. Yeah. And that they can help us. Yeah. But I, I have a feeling where this also will end up going is like, Sometimes those teachers that say, oh, you're not good enough, yeah, yeah. can also inspire you in a way that they didn't intentionally meant to do, but they often give us the greatest gifts. And I have talked to a lot of people. That's what I do for a living. It's amazing. Often the crockety negative coaches or parents are the ones who end up lighting a fire or end up inspiring us in a different way that they didn't mean to do. I'm not, I'm not giving them the credit for it, but it's a good reminder that when we face that, there's often an opportunity if we choose to accept it. So this is exactly the psychological effect that had on me because I can remember walking hand in hand with my mother after that to the house and I would felt so proud of my mother. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And, and I said to myself, as I walk with her, I'm going to make them proud of me. And so that, that was my ultimate goal. And I said, I'm going to make them proud of me. And uh, so I went ahead and, uh, and graduated. But right before graduation, I need to have this in here. Back again, the senior day and all of these people coming in from Colorado State and UCLA. Blah, blah, blah. Well, I had no interest because I knew my grades were horrible. But the other issue, my parents couldn't afford to send me to school. I had no money. They had no money. We, we were poor. Happy, but poor. <laughs> so, I immediately said to myself, I'm going to become an electrician. Why I said electrician? Only because of the fact that my father used to talk about what good money they made. So that stuck in my mind. I knew I was not going to become a, a diploma type of person so I had to choose a trade that would be a respectable one so when they're having senior day I was looking around and all this you know and I had brains that went to school with me I mean I remember John Woodruff he got a a full full scholarship to Harvard and his first semester he set all sorts of academic records and so forth and all of these you know so I'm, I'm saying to myself, that it, it really closed in on me. And I remember I just really felt compressed. Looking around in the corner was this gentleman who had sort of a makeshift little table. And on the front, and free, <laughs> he painted it all, what happened. Midwest College of Commerce, Pueblo, Colorado. 
was that? You know, so I you recognize Pueblo. <laughs> so I walked up to him and he said, "Oh, I must have been the only one that showed me any interest." And he says, "Yes, how are you?" And I said, "Yes, uh, uh, I Midwest College show. Yeah, let me tell you a little about it." Well, don't laugh, but this is exactly what they were doing. It was a trade school for telegraphers in the railroad. You would go to Pueblo, Colorado, and they'd teach you how to send and receive in Morse code and so many other things. Uh, you know, how to talk to uh, telegraphy-wise to keep the, ra- the railroads running and so on and so forth. So I said to myself, gee, that sounds like fun. And your family would travel free on the railroads and this and that and yada, yada, yada. Well, I came home and I told mom and dad about it. And I said, Laugh, but here's what uh, here's what I, I saw. Well, poor dad, he kind of got interested in this, and it was going to cost something like five hundred dollars to go there. And uh, and in Pueblo, Colorado, he had a niece who lived there. Unknown to me, he contacted Emily and said, "What would you charge if if Demas could stay with you while he finishes X months of school of this trade school?" And uh, and they worked out a deal, and we dad then we went to Albuquerque where this guy had an office. He paid the man. I don't know where he got the money, but I took off uh, sometime in June to Public Colorado to this Midwest College of Commerce, which is located above Woolworth's Shopping Center store, like a five and ten. And I I I I, I remember walking in there. And there must have been 10 people in there, all guys. And uh, there were a few Hispanics, a couple of Native Americans, and the, and the rest were from mostly Oklahoma and Texas. And listening to those uh, keyboards, those clickers and so forth, sending Morse code, yeah, I, I mean, it was just like uh, who flew over the cuckoo's nest or something. And all. I, I was just, uh, uh, what is this? So I, I had to find a job as well. And not far from where I was living with my father's niece was uh, CF&I, Colorado Fuel and Iron. And I took a night job there, making pennies, uh, 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 nails. So I would work at night for about five or six hours, and then I had to go to this stupid trade school to learn and receive so many words per minute and what have you. And then we got the notification that they had three openings. And we would be given free train transportation from Pueblo to Denver to be interviewed. So they selected the top three. And it was me, another uh, Hispanic, and, and a Native American. And we headed up to Denver. We sat there patiently, and uh, the interview, it went like 10 or 15 minutes. It wasn't hardly anything at all. So the guy comes out, and this is back when racism was just out in the open. I mean, nobody held back. He says, uh, okay, uh, uh, Chavez and Martinez and uh, whoever the the Native American was, uh, sorry, uh, we can't go with you because actually we we have experience with you. Native Americans, they can't hold their liquor, they're drunks and so forth. Uh, you guys don't know how to speak English and this and that, blah, 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 blah. So they brought in and they hired the two worst students in the class. Wow. And right after that, I came home, I called Dad, and I said, Pop, this, this isn't for me. 
And he said, come on home, son. So I came home, and I knew I had to do something. So I went to the gas station near the house, and I asked if they needed any help. And I speak to that man to this day, Roy Christensen, who's 95 years old. Wow. He hired me as a a filling station attendant at $1.07 an hour. So I'm in there pumping gas. But then I used to see this guy drive in in a green and gold-colored Buick, and on the back it had the Fighting Irish Notre Dame. If you're Catholic, you had to support Notre Dame. So Notre Dame, my father, I, you know, I mean, that was every kid's dream to go to Notre Dame. So I would just make special effort to wait on this guy. On this guy, and I mean, I would just, I was all over him. He says, "You went to Notre Dame, yeah?" Well, he was a part of the Sweeney family, and there were five boys in Santa Fe, a very wealthy family, and I got to know Jack very, very well. And he finally says to me, Demas, what are you doing here? What do you mean? He says, what, what kind of life are you going to have? You know, pumping gas here. <laughs> what happened? And I said, well, it's not much, but I'm looking around. He says, well, look, you've got the laboratory here, and you've got connection with people. Betsy, who went to school with you, her father runs, he's the division chief for supply and property, Harry Allen, a very well-known, very powerful man in the laboratory. Hit him up for a job. So I uh, applied and got hired on at the Los Alamos National Laboratory as a truck driver. And, uh, and that gave me the opportunity to get a clearance. And uh, that exposed me to something that became a very big major part of my life and my career in the name of security. Uh, because everything that was done at that period of time was behind high security fences and you had to have special secret clearances and things of this nature. Uh, while I'm working there, I then started thinking to myself about college. And I said, do you think I can do it? I'm talking to myself. And one evening I was coming home, it was in the summertime, early summer, and a little drive-in, hamburger driving place we have there. And I was by myself, and I had the window down, and I heard a bunch of guys that I knew quite well talking about college and how anxious they were to get back to school. And so all those friends from high school, they're all off at school. They're all off at school. West Point. They all did really well academically in high school. You were They either went to the service or they went to college. Got it. Yeah. And uh, so there I was, kind of stuck huge pile of mud, and I didn't know which direction to go, and I didn't know what to do, and I wasn't really happy, because my future was still very, very cloudy, very blurry, I just didn't even know what what was going to happen. But that night I heard him speaking about a place called Eastern New Mexico University. Never heard of it. So I came home, and I looked it up, and there it was, Portales, New Mexico, small school. So I said, I'm going to try it. I've got saved up some money, so I wrote a letter to the registrar. And I openly stated, look, I'm not a scholar, uh, and you will see this if I have to send you my grades and what have you. But uh, I'm willing to take a chance if you are. So a couple of weeks went by, and Mom informs me when I get home, you got a letter from Eastern University. I It took me a good half hour to open it. 
because I knew it was going to be rejection. I just knew it. And I opened it up, and they said, if you're willing, we're willing. Wow. So I said, beautiful. So I contacted a buddy of mine, Don Morrow, who was a couple of years ahead of me, and he was a, a, a junior or so at Eastern. And, uh, and I asked him about the place. And uh, anyway, to put it on a fast forward, I enrolled. It was tough. My first semester, I went on academic probation because I had to work. I was working at the cafeteria, 65 cents an hour. And I was working on weekends on very dairy farms, milking cows, picking broom corn, uh, doing any kind of farm work that I knew quite well. Uh, then some spark hit. I don't know what it was, but uh, there were a couple of professors who took me off to the side. Uh, Dr. Black, uh, Dr. Stewart, and they said... Uh, I'm willing to give you some counseling and time if you'd like to. I said, absolutely. If it hadn't have been for that encouragement, I don't know what would have happened to me, but it showed <clears throat> that someone academically had an interest in me. So and now you're being exposed. So your time with that security clearance, you started to see some things that were interesting to you. Precisely. And, and precisely. now you're in school, and now some people now are I'm showing school, interest. And in the you. laboratory is willing to hire me during Easter break and in summer employment so I can have some income hmm. in that period of time. So my first year, I got that out of the way, and I finished it, and I did it all on my own. All of the money I'd saved, I paid everything for it. My mother and father did not put one red cent into my education. Look, they took care of me when I was home. God bless them. But anyway, things just sort of started clicking. And what were you studying? Uh, I started off in business administration and with the business and economics. Hmm. So uh, everything just started kind of falling in place. And were you still social? Did you have? The, were you able to make the same connections that you were in high school? Then I became extremely popular in college. Yeah. Had great friends. Uh, got on the rodeo team. I used to bareback on the rodeo team. Wait, wait, time out. So you grew up, you know, on a on a ranch. Yes. So it's a cowboy Mexican American cat town. Yeah. And now you're 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 doing rodeo. I'm rodeoing now for the rodeo team at the, the college. Which is interesting because is that like what did Dad think of that? My father. Yeah. Oh, he thought it was great because he's a cowboy. Oh yeah, yeah. Bob thought it was great, and uh, I mean, it was, and I felt great because there's always been that part of me that will never leave me. You're a rancher, <laughs> absolutely. I feel like people that grow up around that—that's no, you never that's, forget. It. Yeah, you, you never, never forget it. It just becomes a part of you. So, so you're and, living the dream in some sense, in that you're learning, you're right. educated, and you're at a place that you never dreamt of, right. and you're also getting to. <laughs> so while, while I'm in college, on my junior year, uh, you all don't have to worry about that anymore, but we used to have what's called a draft. And I got my letter that actually starts off, greetings, you are hereby directed to report to your nearest draft, wow. selective service, blah, blah, blah. So I got that letter, and I took it to the registrar, and she then had a form letter to write back to them, and they gave me a deferment because I was... Passing. I had some decent grades. 
So, uh, and I had one more year to go. So my senior year, Ray Ortega uh, from Alamogordo, New Mexico, who I still correspond with uh, on a weekly basis, came home, uh, and in the meantime, I have been selected the president of our dormitory. So I'm the president of Chavez Hall. Chavez, C-H-A-V-E-S, because all the dorms are named after counties in New Mexico, and there is a county by the name of Chavez. So here I am. I'm in Chavez Hall. I'm the president of Chavez Hall. And then I get uh, elected as the inter-council president for all dormitories. So I'm like, hey, you know, <laughs> I'm kind of feeling pretty good about myself. This is kind of cool. And uh, it, so everything just started working out wonderful. I started feeling good about myself, and I, it, but I kept remembering, you know, running your own lane. Don't get over, you know, on the wrong lane, or you get run over. But set your pace, set your goals, but make sure they're realistic goals—goals goals that can be achieved, not you know some pie in the sky sort of stuff. So uh, Ray came home one day and he says, uh, "Demas, I just uh, signed up and took a test, and I want you to come with me uh, to go to OCS because he had gotten his papers as well." So as soon as graduation happened, we, we would have to go to the draft. We'd have to go to the service and fulfill our, our service obligation. So I went, took the test, and both of us got accepted to OCS at Newport, Rhode Island. So we went to Albuquerque, took our physical, and gosh darn it, Ray didn't pass because he had flat feet. So on August the 14th of 1960, I left for OCS in Newport, Rhode Island. And, and I thought I had dropped off on the southern side of the world. So I had always been a good swimmer. So this guy saw me in, in the swimming pool. We used to have uh, mock escapes from ships that are burning or sinking or what have you. And he said, uh, I noticed you've got it. You're a pretty powerful swimmer. Uh, have you ever considered uh, doing some of that now in the Navy, and I said, well, like what? He says, well, we have a branch called UDT, Underwater Demolition Team, which was actually the frogman, the precursor to SEALs. So I said, uh, how does that sound to you? I said, well, it sounds exciting. So I took off to uh, Bridgeport, Connecticut, and started my frogman UDT training, and one of the exercises was that you would be inside an underwater tube and you'd get ejected, and then you'd have to put on your scuba gear and plant explosives and this and that and so forth. So I didn't clear my ear passage very well before they shot me out. And as soon as I got shot out, I heard a huge bang in my left ear. I mean, it, it just almost knocked me out. It was so painful. And I floated to the top, and they picked me up, and I busted my ear drum on my left ear. So I washed out. So uh, then... Did that affect your hearing for a while? Like, what did it do to your hearing? Well, I'm, I, I wear hearing aids now, <laughs> so it did affect me. I'm deaf in my left ear. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I can't hear my left. Is that right? Yeah, I was born that way. I'm, we're not really sure exactly what happened, but I have no hearing in my left ear. Oh, be darn. So you and I both, this conversation, we're just going to have to keep yelling yeah. to hear each other. Um, but well, yeah. that's why you have such a nice, powerful voice. Well, you know what? It helps me. I think it's interesting. I think because of that, I've used my eyes more. 
Um, so I think I use my eyes to connect, and I think you do. And I, and but, so I but but your voice, I love it. I like a good strong voice. Yeah, I don't know. I think that just comes from being a middle of three boys, and you have to yell to get your but, voice but, heard. But it, it also brings attention to the people you're talking to. Yeah, as opposed to somebody. Who, you know, yeah, I can't you can talk with a strong assurance. Whatever. Yeah. You got, you got people's attention. Yeah, it's probably some intensity to it, but it's been interesting because I think my hearing, even from a young age, I used to have to walk. I just learned how to walk on the other side of people or set myself up on the other side if we're at dinner, you know, and all my friends now know. But like when I was in college, I would lean in to try to talk to a girl, but I try to be on the other side. They thought I was doing one thing. It got, it got confusing, but yeah, I try to tell people all the time because sometimes I just don't hear them and they think like I'm ignoring them. But I, but I really believe that my hearing is, is – my lack of hearing has helped me. I can kind of read lips. I can read body language. I think I'm more perceptive because of my hearing. So I wonder how your hearing impacted you uh, as you – Well, it, 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 not totally negative, but uh, it, I, I think it's somewhat hereditary. My father had bad hearing as well. But with me, it's very because I've been around a lot of construction work, a lot of loud noise. Uh, I used to hum a lot. So, so you are going through. The- so I, I washed out. I then got to station here in Washington D.C. with Bupers, uh, Naval Bureau personnel, and I put in my active duty time primarily here, running a program or helping to run a program called Sea Bay Shoreway and training the training people who were out on the ship into shore and shore out the ship and so forth. I finished that and went home on August fourteenth, nineteen sixty-two. And I didn't know what I was going to do. I was waiting for my buddy, Chuck Frederick, to come out of the Navy as well. He was two months behind me, but he was in a different area. And he found himself a girlfriend. So we were going to go off and work on a cruise ship, and that kind of went down down the tube. So I was just kind of out there by myself. So I contacted my old St. Christopher, Mr. Harry Allen, who uh, gave me my first job at the lab. And he says, uh, Mr. Allen, I'm home now. And he says, Demos your timing couldn't be more perfect. I'm starting a brand new program in supply and property for training managements, managers. And I've, I've got four slots. How would you like to fill one of them? I said, absolutely. So I, I went ahead and, uh, and, and signed up. I went ahead and signed up and, uh, uh, my first training was to, to be a buyer. So because uh, I had an interest in the field of security, they appointed me to be the purchasing agent for classified purchases, mm. primarily for atomic nuclear warheads. So I was working extremely... minor stuff. Like, you know. I, I was working very close with uh, engineers, nuclear scientists and physicists and what have you. And I was also working with companies like Monsanto and Bendix Corporation. And I. Uh, so this time, now you realize, I mean, so then you, you mentioned earlier, like, no one really knew what was going on, but now you're in it. Now you're seeing, like, this is ma- major. I mean, this is but the historic point, stuff. The, the point that I emphasized the most to myself was the fact that, you know, if you set your aim on something, but not way out of range, but realistic, and stick to it. You know, you can make it. And once you make it, it has a tendency to sort of grow its own tentacles where you can go different directions as well. 
And that's exactly what happened to me because as I was involved with purchasing and so forth, I go back now to my sister Dolores, who played a crucial role in my life. Uh, it was through Dolores that I became extremely interested in AIC and ARC, uh, uh, Associates for Retarded Citizens. And I did so well in the state of New Mexico, uh, pushing and developing new chapters, that I got a call one day from a lady. So you're doing this on the side while you're in I the I was lab. doing it on the side. Nonprofit. When I was working in Los Angeles, I was doing it on the side, exactly. And I get a, I get a call from a lady uh, who introduced herself as Eunice Kennedy Schreiber, mm-hmm. uh, who was starting up a new program called Special Olympics. And... Uh, and then I get a call also from a gentleman by the name of Sergeant Schreiber. And I thought this was all being made up. <laughs> I said, no, no, what the heck's going on here? Mr. Schreiber uh, called me into Washington. Uh, they had uh, an opening uh, for the, uh, uh, J- uh, the Kennedy... Foundation on Mental Retardation. They had a sister, Rosemary, who was born uh, with a learning disability. And she spent the majority of her life in Wisconsin at a special school. But Mr. Kennedy, uh, Mr. Schreiber called me and he said, I'd I'd, I'd like to interview you and and see if you'd be interested in this job, my wife and I. So it was a lot of PR, working with radio and TV and whatever. So anyway, were you were you excited to do that? I was excited, but at the same time, I said I, I, I can't because I'm not qualified, and I'm not going to lie, and I'm not going to go into something fibbing that I'm capable when I'm not. I'm just not. You knew your lane was back in Los Alamos, where you could help in the lab, yeah, run that security, yeah. and exactly. So I mean, I was keenly involved in security. I loved it, but uh, but now all of a sudden, here's this world-known man and woman who have asked to interview me. And I was staying at the Hilton Hotel down on K Street. And I was told by Mrs. Shriver's secretary that uh, there will be a driver to come by to pick me up and uh, uh, bring me out to the uh, Shriver compound, which they used to live over here by Georgetown Prep School. They had a home out there. And uh, so... He drove me up to the house, and there was Mrs. Kennedy waiting for me, and she walked me in, and I was just overwhelmed. I mean, I'm looking at the piano, and I'm seeing the pictures of JFK, or, you know, the whole family, and everybody there. And I, and I sit down, and she's a, a very nervous lady, uh, a very bottom-line lady, a uh, very action-oriented lady, and she starts off, well, tell me a little about yourself. So all I had to talk about was just my sister Dolores, and it just took off from there, you know. I finally told her, I said, Ms. Schreiber, I, I, I can't even be considered for this job. And she says, why not? I know nothing about TV. I know nothing about broadcasting. I don't know about contacts and so forth. And I don't want this program to fail on that account. Uh, you need somebody who has that kind of background. And she had a smile on her face, and I'll never forget. She says, you know, I really, really appreciate your honesty. That's it. It's a good sign. Uh, by the way, I did, uh, do you have to go home this weekend? I said, no, I don't. She says, well, my brother, Robert Kennedy, is going to be the guest speaker at the ARC 
annual convention that was being held in New York City. And she said, I'd like you to come and be my guest there mm. for the weekend. I said, I'm Had you been, so you, did you, you, had you spent time in New York City before? No. Never? No. <laughs> so here you are, your first time going to New York City with the Kennedys. With the oh, Kennedy. <laughs> that's normal. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I, uh, uh, she then said, uh, my husband now wants to talk to you. So I came back, and at the time, uh, Mr. Shriver was head of the Peace Corps, and he was also starting up what was known as the War on Poverty, Office of Economic Opportunity. And so I went to see him that afternoon at the Peace Corps building, uh, not far from the White House, I remember, and uh, we had a nice chat. And uh, he looked at me and he says, uh, I'd like you to consider being the Peace Corps rep for uh, Chile. And I said, but, but sir, I, there's, there's three elements that I understand because I did a little homework. And to be a Peace Corps rep, you would have to be married, which I was not. You would have had to serve as a Peace Corps volunteer, which I had not. And you had to be 30 years old, of which I was not. So we'll, we'll talk about that later. So like he says, well, now I'd like you to go talk to my my friend who heads up the Latin American project, uh, Mr. Mackowitz. I don't know if that name rings a bill to you or not. He was campaign manager for Robert Kennedy when he ran for president, and he was with him when he got shot and killed at the Ambassador Hotel near the Coconut Grove in California. Um, so I went to speak to Mr. Mackowitz, and and he says, look, the boss wants you. I says, I, I don't feel right doing this. He says, why? And I says, well, picture yourself. You're a Peace Corps volunteer. You're married. You meet all the qualifications to be a Peace Corps rep. And all of a sudden, this guy out of nowhere parachutes into town who doesn't meet any of the criteria. And, and how would you feel about that? Because you, where, says, does, where does that integrity come from? Because you experienced, you know, your dad getting passed over for jobs, um, you know, because of his last name. Like, is, is that, do you think, it, it, the basis for it? It, it, it? it comes from, that's a good question. It comes primarily from my mother and father. Uh, two extremely honest people. Uh, I mean, they just, their word was gold. Was that the biggest value they taught you? Hard work, honesty? Exactly. Like, those are the morals, the values that's, that's embedded in, in your yeah, family. That's exactly it. So, t so tell me what happens next. So I, uh, I, I, I disqualified myself, and I said, I can't do it. I just wouldn't feel right. And he says, well, okay, but Mr. Trevor wants to talk to you again. So I went back to his office, and he says, okay, I don't want to lose you. He says, would you do me a favor? I understand you're going up to New York for the weekend with my wife. Uh, on Monday, would you mind flying into Austin, Texas, and interviewing with Dr. Crook, who is my regional director for OEO, the War on Poverty, that handles five states, Oklahoma, New Mexico, uh, Louisiana, Arkansas, Texas, I believe those were the five. And he says, I, I think you would be a perfect fit because of your bilingual ability and so forth, and your personality and wanting to help people and so forth. I think that's, that'd be a good fit for you. He said, I'd like you to interview. I said, okay, I will. 
So from you're getting York, a tour of the country. So, <laughs> so from New York, I flew to Austin, Texas, yeah. and Mr. Kirk was waiting for me and his assistant. We went to the main office there, right next to the Capitol there in Austin, Texas. And he looked at me and he said, Demas, I don't even know why I'm interviewing you. The job is yours. He wants you. Period. So he basically described the work and so forth. And uh, and he said, we also support uh, LBJ when he comes to town. Uh, his ranch was just down the way. Oh, wow. Well, you're hitting all of the, it's kind of, all kind of, the power of it, it's sounding pretty neat, you know. <laughs> so I said, well, look, uh, I'd really like to talk it over with my family, my mother and father. Uh, I wasn't married. And uh, I said, certainly. He said, you just get back to us whenever you can. So I talked to my mom and pop all along this fantastic trip that I was on. And I, as soon as I landed, uh, I, I went, I had an apartment there in Los Alamos, and I went over for dinner to mom and dad, and I told them about it. And I said, what do you think about this job in Austin, Texas? You know. So mom and dad says, hey, uh, it's, uh, the starting salary is, wow, you'll never make that here in Los Alamos. Uh, and, and just the exposure you're going to get, the experience you're going to get, the traveling of all those five states, you're going to be working with people that you want to help, the, the indigent and so forth. Um, it's all entirely you, but as far as we're concerned, we're behind you 100%. So I call them, I said, okay, sign me up. Why was it important to get your parents' blessing on that? Because uh, it sounds like a no-brainer. When you, yeah, yeah, you it, just, it's, it's just the way things were done. Yeah. yeah. You valued their opinion. Oh, you were grateful for everything they'd done immensely, for you. Immensely, immensely. So you wanted yeah. them to be part of the process, yeah. the decision process. Yeah, I, I just wanted them to be a part of my journey as well. Uh, were you grateful in, in, in that part of your life to be working and doing what you're doing? Um, or did you feel a sense of entitled to doing more with your life? Both. Yeah. Both. I mean, I was so grateful <clears throat> that I had come as far as I had with all of the uh, hurdles and barriers that I had to overcome linguistically and everything else-wise. Uh, but then when I started realizing that I was actually achieving them, I said, why not go for the brass ring? You know, why not keep going? The reason I asked that, there was a basketball player who just, I read an article, and he was quoted as saying, Opportunity doesn't go away; it just goes to somebody else. Exactly. I thought that was such a cool idea. Like, yeah. and, and to your credit, you said, "You know what? This isn't for me. This des- someone else deserves this." But then that moment came where you had to say, "You know what? I'm not going to pass this up for yeah. let's this go to someone else." And you and you took it precisely. And I took it. I grabbed onto it, and uh, and I uh, I did excel very well in it, uh, and. Um, I, I, I kept doing what I felt good at, what I was doing, and so forth. And I was uh, running a program in New Orleans, Louisiana, and uh, I was auditing it and inspecting federal funds, how they were being expended or improperly being expended or expended. And a gentleman from Washington, uh, from uh, Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, had heard about our program and he wanted to know if he could be part of the team just to come down and observe and audit. So I talked to my boss and I said, no, I don't see any problem. A guy by the name of Foreman, I still remember his last name. 
Actually, when he came there was to watch me in action because they had a position here in Washington, D.C. Uh, uh, to work uh, for the, the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare uh, to head up their monitoring program. And, uh, and it offered me a double jump in the federal government. So all of a sudden now I find myself I'm in Washington, D.C. Uh, running this program throughout the United States, all 10 regions. And uh, so I did that quite well. And uh, everything is just humping along really, really good. Then I get a call from the Los Alamos National Laboratory. The original director, Robert Oppenheimer, very famous man, I'm sure you've heard of, had, uh, had left and he was replaced by Norris Bradbury. And uh, I grew up with his sons. And Mr. Bradbury had retired, and he was then replaced by Harold Agnew, who was a physicist in Los Alamos, and in fact flew alongside the Enola Gay during the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki mm. and filmed all of the activity. And he was also with Enrico Fermi in uh, uh, Chicago under Soldier's Field when they were able to uh, uh, analyze uh, fission and fusion and how they could control that to go critical and develop this atomic weaponry and so forth. So uh, Dr. Agnew calls, and I, I knew him well. I, I became friends with him when I was working at the lab as a buyer. And he said, I've got a position that's opening up. It's the employee relations manager for the Los Alamos National Laboratory. I think you would fit well on that, and I'd like you to come in for the interview. I said, wow, okay. He said, and it'll bring you home again. I said, well, that, that's, that's good. So, so you've now traveled, you've been exposed to these big cities, to yeah. these different cultures, but you still felt a drive to go I still, back. I still love New Mexico. Yeah. I still love the ranch. <laughs> I still uh, love the simple way of life. Uh, so, and I still had so many good friends. It, uh, Mark Shriver's wrote a book about his father right before he died. And he titled it, he's, He Was a Good Man. And <clears throat> he takes an ex excerpt from that book when his father went to Yale to address the graduating class. And this is uh, Mr. Schreiber. And I work with Mr. Schreiber. I travel with him extensively throughout the Southwest. Wonderful man, wonderful man. But what he said to that Yale class uh, rung in my ears, and he says, at the end of the day, uh, when it's time to turn off the light, or whatever you want to call it, you know, it's not the amount of money you have in the bank, or house size, or the size of your account, and so forth, it's the number of friends. And uh, for me, that's really what I miss, miss the most, uh, Brian, was, was friends. Good friends. Yeah. Wholesome friends. Uh, people that I had uh, grown up with and, uh, and we still are very, very, cl very close, very tight. So. There's there's two thoughts that come to mind for me. Number one, uh, David Brooks, the uh, writer for the New York Times, wrote a book called The Road to Character. And in it, he talks about the eulogy versus the resume and how people obsess over the resume, but it's really the eulogy that matters. Great. Um, and, and sort of talking about how character is more important who you are is more important than what you did. 
Precisely. Um, and the second thing that comes to mind is Precisely. I work with American University's athletic department and uh, with their athletes over there. And their athletic department talks about we want our athletes to be good. We'd rather them be good than be great. And we live in a society where everyone's striving to be great. And I'm even in the business of helping people become great. But to me, what they're trying to say at AU is we would rather them be good and good people than not be good while trying to be great. And I think that's a push-pull that our society, especially in America, struggles with is how do you go for greatness while still being good at your core and still having character? Because, look, there are some people who have achieved great success in our country without going into names who might not be good. And uh, I think that push-pull is a fascinating dynamic, but it sounds like there are, whether it's it's that keynote speech, uh, there are things along the way that have made you prioritize character or goodness over, like it would have been very easy for you to go toward greatness and accept those jobs because it would have helped you shortcut the path to greatness. But instead you said, no, I'm not right here. That's not the right position for me. This is the right position for me. And I can still be good and have my character and my honesty or my integrity. And, that, and that's key. Yeah. And that's me. Uh, it, it's just like uh, I, I could never accept a job if I didn't feel good in it, mm. if I didn't feel honest in it, if I didn't feel that it was part of me. And, and, and if you're happy in a work, you, you feel it. You, you really feel it deep inside you because everything you say and do is part of that work. But it's not just happy, right? Because your dad probably wasn't always happy doing the stuff he was doing at work, but there was value in it. There oh, yes. was honesty in it. There was um, integrity exactly. in what well, he was doing. Precisely. I think people mistake happiness and pleasure because uh, you can, like you said, we were happy. We were poor, but we were happy because it's not about eating a filet mignon and sipping a great wine. Yeah. It's about knowing that we have values and that we care for each other and we look after each other. And so you were just talking about the friendship back in Los Alamos. So that, that those dynamic relationships cause you to leave uh, DC and, and go to Los Alamos or do you, do you not do that? Well, well what happened then is I'm working uh, in Los Alamos as the, as the employer relations manager. Uh, and, and I, I, I did really well. I was so happy, not me, but I mean, being the person who was the impetus to, to, to to get it rolling, and it falls back again to my sister, Dolores. Um, I began a program which was unique in the federal government uh, in hiring individuals with learning disabilities to get Q clearances. Wow. And I started studying that and the possibility of it, and I talked to my director, Dr. Agnew, and then the gentleman who replaced him, Dr. Kerr, and... Uh, I, I, they gave me permission to go ahead and try it out, and I had to come to Washington and sell it to security because they figured an individual with a learning disability would be a, a security risk. And they're absolutely correct. But as long as you keep them in, a, uh, in an area that isn't contaminant, that isn't uh, a, a threat, that there will be no problems, that it's clean, for them to do whatever it is you want them to do. So I trained them, they've got a contract to train them to be Xerox operators. Wow. And sure, you'd be Xerox in confidential classified state. 
but it's just a simple task, you know, knowing what buttons to hit, making the stacks, and delivering them to whoever it is that's going to make something meaningful out of what it is that you copied. And so they gave me the go-ahead, and I had some people already in line. Uh, one of them is a cousin, uh, my first cousin's uh, son, uh, Stanley, who lives in Albuquerque. Uh, one of the biggest threats, not threats, one of the biggest concerns that parents have who have uh, individuals who are disabled, mentally or physically, is what happens to them when mom and dad are gone. Mm-hmm. So I talked to my first cousin, Teresa, in Albuquerque, and her husband, Richard, and I said, uh, I'd like to try something with Stanley. So I explained to him that I have a program that I think I can hire Stanley on at the AEC office, Atomic Energy Commission office in Albuquerque. And it would be this uh, Xerox and so forth, which I had already done in Los Alamos. And also in the meantime, while I'm in Los Alamos, uh, the National ARC awarded us the Employer of the Year for that very program, which I think all the higher-ups that really helped me propel that thing to success. i got to tell you a quick story. So my dad built a business, and they had a big mailroom. And that mailroom was run by a certain guy, and my dad developed this amazing relationship with this guy who didn't speak much English either. And uh, my older brother was going to start his internship start interning places, he asked, I guess, my dad if he could intern at his company. And my dad said, sure, you'll be in the mailroom. So my dad puts my, my brother in the mailroom, and he's licking envelopes. That was like his job, just licking envelopes in the mailroom. Um, but I think the message there of like, no, this is an important job. Yeah. And, you know, the Xeroxing was an important job, but they were competent. They were capable. Someone has to lick the envelopes or else they're, they're yeah. open and, and it doesn't work. The bright side for Stan yeah. He said he's on his own. Yeah. He drives, he's got his own car, he's got his own apartment. Self-sufficient. He's got over 30 years of service. He's got his own insurance. He's got a nice pile of money saved up. So mom and pop can breathe easy. Life. You know, he's got three brothers, but uh, aside from me, there are four boys in the family. But outside of that, everything's cool. But anyway, here, here I am, and back in Los Alamos again, and... Uh, there is uh, a physicist by the name of Dr. Ed Knapp uh, who had just been tapped during the Reagan administration to head up the National Science uh, Foundation, NSF. And the word spread throughout the laboratory, and I knew Ed very well because I'd helped him on some issues in his division, uh, racially involved, but we cleaned it up and we were able to put a lid on it before it really got out of hand. So I get a call from Ed one day, and he says, uh, Demas, I'm going to be up seeing the director, and I used to just be two doors down from the director, uh, there in uh, Mahogany Road, as we used to call it, and it was uh, Dr. Don Kerr, who was the director at the time, and he says, I'm going to be up to see Don, and uh, I was wondering if I could slip by and see you for a little while after the meeting. I said, that'd be great, Ed, because I want to shake your hand and congratulate you. I understand you're going to be the new director for NSF. Well, we'll talk about that. So I'm sitting in there, knock on the door. Ed walks in, tall, outstanding physicist, just a great guy. And he says, uh, okay, Demos, here's the deal. I just got through talking to Don. I want you to come to Washington with me as my administrative assistant. Wow. I said, well, 
what is I don't understand you. And he says, well, I was so impressed by the way you handled yourself and the way you kept us out of uh, out of jail and so forth. And I have accepted the position of the director for NSF. And in, during this period of time, I have met Marion. And uh, we had just gotten married on New Year's Eve of the year before. And Marion and her daughter, uh, Anna, are getting ready to come out to New Mexico to, you know, sit up home with me there and so forth in May uh, after uh, she finishes uh, grade school. So Ed says, uh, I want you to come watch it and it'll put you closer to Marion. And uh, so I called Marion immediately and oh, she was so excited because she could keep her job, etc., uh, etc. Et and it was, that, that meant a lot. So I wound up out here uh, on a leave of absence from the laboratory for four years. And, and during that period of time, I started working very, very closely with the Department of State and uh, on some of their uh, programs overseas. And I uh, used to go to the Department of State frequently, or they'd come by and so forth. And uh, so my, my tenure is about up, and it's about time for Mary and I to go to New Mexico. And the Department of State... What was it like for you living in D.C. and and the difference between D.C. and Los Alamos? And I know D.C. today is different than D.C. then, but um, what was that transition like for you? Well, the transition was was huge because I'm dealing in a much higher altitude. Uh, and, 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 and the movers and the shakers are, are totally different from the ones that I've been accustomed to because they were sort of down, down here. Not simple. And yeah, not simple. No simple. Exactly. Uh, it was a brand new, interesting, uh, phenomena for me to learn the politics, to learn your way in and out, to learn how to wheel and deal, to, you know, tap the shoulder and that shoulder and the give and take. It was a, it was a totally different environment for me. And I liked it. Yeah, I enjoyed it. And I got involved once again in the field of You're security. someone that likes action. Yeah. yeah. Accurate. So there good. was action. There Very was a lot, lot of activity. A lot of activity. Would you say you're a risk taker? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You're a cowboy. Yeah, I'm a cowboy. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> I'm a cowboy. All right. So and I, yeah, I come out of that shoot on that horse, and I don't know what's going to go left or right, but my primary target is to stay on top of it. Yeah, <laughs> just ride it. So, all right, so take me, you're done. Those four years come to, a, come to an end. And yeah, so I'm getting ready to go back, and uh, the Department of State comes to me, and they said, uh, we don't want you to go. I said, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, we, we were so impressed with the work you're doing. We'd like to offer you a job here. So I talked to her with Marion. She's my mom and dad. I had to clear her with her, just like I had to with uh, with mom and dad. Did home. you, when you, when you uh, use those people in your life to think about it, is that also the opportunity for you to think about it as well and, and reflect on it? Oh, absolutely. It's it's also no. It, it's it's the it's bounce space. off of them. It, it's, it, it's the bounce off of them because they, they, I can use them as a sounding board. Uh, things that I wouldn't dare say to the person who's offered me the position, I can feel far more comfortable and free to bounce it off of somebody else and get their opinion. Did you see? What, do you feel like you have emotional control? That ability to, you know, silence your gut. Or do you feel like it, it, there's a lot of that involved, and it's something that that comes with a lot of practice, and it, it's of a necessity. You cannot allow your emotions to get carried away. You have to contain them, and you have to control them. So I imagine both of those 
sounded like no brainers to you in that moment, but you were able to step back, say, well, uh, you let, have me, to. let me have some space and think you have, about you it. You have to look back at it and get the big picture, you know, and many times, and God bless Marianne, she helped me through a lot of those times and so forth. So we talked it over, and I said, okay, so I wrote my letter to Los Alamos, I hereby uh, tender my resignation, and yickety, yickety, yick, and it wasn't long after that that I get another call from Langley and they want me to come out there and visit with them because I've been working a lot with the CIA and um, and th they have an offer for me. So here I am. All of a sudden, I am right in the nucleus of security. I mean, you just don't get any more security than in the Central Intelligence Agency or working in the uh, national security uh, environment with uh, uh, all of the big players, everyone, FBI, NSA, etc., etc. So they were starting up a brand new program and they needed someone with some uh, programmatic managerial background and so forth. Uh, it was called the Radio Frequency Shielding Program. Now, now that sounds fancy engineering-wise and what have you, but they were looking for a manager. Human, human. And they, they, and they were looking for someone that could bring together these engineers and physicists and so forth and get out of them what we needed to get out because engineers are weird people. <laughs> Brainy people, but wow, you can't leave them alone for too long a time. You know? They need, you know, just like a wild horse, you got to put a kind of little muzzle on them and go, show them how to, you know, which way to go. Take them to the left and then give them full rein. Now we gallop and we go to the Kentucky Derby. So um, that's what they wanted, and they explained that to me. And they said there'd be a lot of traveling and so forth. So my first uh, project was the uh, riddling of our embassy in Moscow, where we had discovered so many listening devices that the Russians had implanted there. Thank you, Mr. Kissinger, for that. Um, so I started getting, making numerous uh, visits to uh, Moscow, and, uh, and one thing led to another, and then from there I came up with an idea of, uh, because so many shipments were going out and so forth, some secure, some unsecure, uh, we didn't know exactly what the workers were doing or if it was uh, uh, anything that was going haywire or what have you, so... Long story short, I and a colleague of mine, uh, George Herman, uh, we sat down and we developed what was called the accreditation program. And the accreditation program, Brian, was to go out and basically grow with the building and do four phases. Cleanse it and make sure that phase one, everything is fine, there's nothing in planet, and then phase two, phase three, until we top off and we're ready to cut the ribbon. And that program took off like a fire. Mm -hmm. I mean, everybody wanted it. So that put me on the road constantly. All over the world? All over the world. Yeah. Yeah, so I traveled 88 countries. So anytime they're opening a new building, you guys are coming in and basically certifying that this we, building is And that's the term, certified. That's exactly what we did. And we would... Are run. you pinching yourself at this moment? Like, oh, are you God. pinching yourself, right? But let me tell you something. Let me tell you what happened to me. I'm in Hong Kong, and I get a call from the uh, message room, and uh, there's uh, a gentleman who uh, 
tells me, says, oh, Mr. Chavez, you have an urgent secret cable that you need to come up here to read, because you had to go into the PC, the Post Communications Center, PCC, uh, to do that. You just They couldn't bring it out. It has to stay in a vaulted area, right? Marine guards, and so on and so forth. So I hit the buzzer, and this guy opens the door, and he looks at me, and he keeps staring at me. And he says, are you Dimas Chavez from Torreon? <laughs> I mean, I, I almost died. Who won? He says, it's me, Eddie, Eddie Garcia, my cousin, who I had not seen since we were that big in Torreon. And he had joined the Department of State, and he had become a communicator, and he was stationed in Hong Kong, and he was the one that received the message, and when he saw Demos Chavez, he said, there's only one Demos Chavez in the world, you know. And there we were. So we spent a, a lovely period of time while, while I was there, and I followed him for a while. From there, he went to Mexico for his last duty station, and then he retired. You think about your, your journey, and there's, there's specific things that happened to you that led to where you went. You know, if you don't have a, a sister with Down syndrome, who knows what your passion, if, if you end up getting connected with the Kennedys and, you know, you do that because it's the right thing to do because you're supporting, you're not doing that to then get connected with the Kennedys, no, no, right. right? And if you don't grow up around these kids who are basically the future engineers that you then have to manage and you don't have the experience socially to deal with these brainiacs who go to Harvard and go to, you know, all of these Ivy leagues or West point or whatever right. it might be. Maybe you don't have the ability to manage those people. If you don't, if you don't, if your dad doesn't have the, uh, doesn't have the opportunity to move to Los Alamos and be involved with these, it's just the, the opportunities that came that I think others might not have grabbed or others may not have have taken advantage of you grabbed and then were paid back. I just read an article. It was really interesting about a softball player and she went to Alabama and played softball in Alabama. And when she went to Alabama, she was expecting to be the starter and be the star. And throughout her years, they kept recruiting other girls who were better than her. And those girls started to play. And by her senior year, she hadn't really played much, but she wanted to be a lawyer. And she somehow got connected to a Washington, D.C. law firm. And when she went up to D.C. to do her interview, they Googled her. And in the when they Googled her, they found out that there was an article about how she just worked her hardest, was always there for the team, and, you know, was proud to play at softball in Alabama, even though she didn't get the reward of being a star. And they ended up hiring her. And she used the phrase, the game knows. So the game knows. And it, the game knows when you do it the right way. The game knows uh, when you sacrifice for something bigger than yourself. Uh, and you started off this conversation by saying you wanted to make your parents proud. Yeah. And that was like the big motivating factor for you. And I would, I would assume every decision that you made along the way was in part to just make your parents proud, yeah. to do the right thing. And, and, that, and that has carried forth from there because <clears throat> once mom and dad were gone, then the next element of, of level of prideness was my family. Yeah. You know, so there's my wife, Marion, Dolores, Daniela, Anna. And as long as I make them proud, I'm proud. So you're now in the CIA. And as I said, I'm sure you're like pinching yourself at some point because growing up in, in, 
and to grow up where you came from to where you were was drastic yet they were both security right like there was there's a security background um when you're in the cia what are you experiencing things that are making you mentally develop like talk about your mindset being there and obviously there's an element of you know secrecy that comes with the cia and there's an element like us civilian we just we don't know what we don't know can you talk about your mindset? What was your mentality while you were at the CIA? Well, it was it was split because I had a cover. It wasn't Venus Chavez. I had another name. Yeah. So when I went overseas, uh, I couldn't tell Marion where I was going, but she was always given a little card that I provide for her that in the case of an emergency, here's who you call, and they will get in touch with me within a matter of minutes, and I'll be in touch with you. So if you ever need me, I'm never out of reach, you know, and so forth. That was a little difficult. It was difficult for Marion as well. Uh, but there was a mindset that, the, that I had to mentally play two roles. One role was the open role that we, you and I are just now enjoying and so forth. And the other one was a very selective role that you could only be as open as I am right now with selective people. Sure. People who have a need to know. Sure. As we call it. Sure. People who have the same credentials and so forth as I. Uh, how did you compartmentalize that? Like, how did you? Is it just you do what you do? You, you stay do. in your lane? Like, yeah. like once again, you. you yeah, and, yeah, and that's a good term that you used earlier in our that start off our conversation, and my pop used it as well. Is it, as long as you run in your own lane, you know, use the other lane only to pass. Yeah. But uh, don't don't get in the way of somebody who's sure. running as fast as you are. And I'm just like envisioning like CIA, Cold War. I mean, there's just some significant things that happen. Oh, um, no, I, well, I, I think some of the greatest moments of my life during my ter- tenure with CIA was uh, uh, being selected to be dispatched to 9-11. I mean, we were, uh, I and, and uh, 29 other security officers were sent out to, to New York City right to ground zero. And we spent three weeks there uh, working 12 on, 12 off. Uh, and the horrifying things we saw there, you know, uh, picking up pieces of people uh, and putting them in bags for DNA uh, identification later in time. But what we were actually doing there, though, Brian, is that uh, we had a, a, a very important presence in New York City in one of the buildings that uh, the two towers came crashing down on. And there was some information there that had it been exposed to the outside, it could have been detrimental. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't sure you've heard the term knock, non-official cover. Uh, these are individuals, when you come into the CIA, uh, you're recruited to be a knock, and you never go to Langley. You never, you never enter that area. You have a contact at all times. You have a handler, and the, he or she are the ones that intercept it. You can be sent off to wherever as a playboy uh, to put on a show that you're some millionaire, you know, or, or some wine specialist or what have you. But it's just to gain entry into that element. Um, now, I've never got into the point where I got so involved in a make-believe world, and it's not really make-believe, but it's just a living an alternate life of who you really are, because eventually you have to come home. Sure. 
mentally and physically. Uh, but being able to split the two and maximize the two at the same time, it, it, it's a difficult job, but it's doable. You know, I, I talk about mindset and that a lot of athletes have to be somewhat narcissistic when they step on the floor or the court or the field. And I'm sure you can go back to your high school days. Like when you step on that field to perform in football, you need to believe that you are God's gift or the world's greatest. And we see it with our athletes all the time. We see it with politicians. We see it with CEOs that when you are performing, there is an element that you need to own it and 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 have this performance mindset. And what I think people don't understand is that mindset is different than the preparation mindset. So the preparation mindset has to be almost neurotic. It has to be almost a perfectionist. I need to know everything that I need to know. So when it's time for me to perform, and your your daughter Dolores can speak to this because actresses are the same way. Like I know my lines, I learn my lines, but then when I get on stage, I'm performing. That's right. And I have to let go. Not imagine playing those roles that's exactly you have to prepare and know everything that you need to know but then you have to trust your instincts and i'm sure in in the navy it's you know when you're when you're training for the military it's the same thing we train we train we train and then we trust our training uh and i'd imagine the cia it's it's very similar in that sense tremendous amount of trust that has to be given absolutely uh yeah you you give your your life to someone Uh, you're their backup uh it's, uh, it's just an instinct that's drilled into you from the very beginning, from the first time you visit the farm up until the last time you're there or wherever else you may be doing any kind of specialized training. And you said you're a risk taker. Um, were you in risky situations? And when you're in risky situations, what is? how do you handle that? Like, how do you, do you use any tools or techniques to help you when you're in risky situations? Absolutely. We, we use a lot of tools. Uh, variety of tools, some that I can't get into, but nevertheless, uh, there's a a host of tools that relate to the actual mission. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, first of all, you know what the target is, you know where it is, but what is it you're going to getting, you're trying to get out of that target? And then from there, it's like a surgeon, you have to take the right tools in order to dissect what it is, because you can't take the whole bloody thing. Right. You have to select what is the most important. I had a CEO tell me the, in, in one of these interviews, he said, what I'm really good at, he goes into companies and they'll hire him and he'll go in for two years, clean up the company, figure out what the company needs. And he said the mistake that a lot of companies make is they take a very broad approach to things. So they think about multiple things. And he's like, I come in and I'm like, what are the three or five things we can really do well? And you've got all these tools, but let's hone in on a, on a few of those tools. Uh, so I think that's similar in that sense. I want to I wanna just take me to also – what happened with your leg? Okay. Um, because, you know, this is a part of the story. You know, if, if we had ended the story uh, with just now, it would be, it no, would be a complete full story. Going fine. I retired. Uh, I had some second thoughts of retiring from, uh, from the agency. Uh, I loved what I was doing. But uh, things were changing, and I didn't care for the changes. Uh, leadership changes. You have good leadership. You have poor leadership. And unfortunately for me, towards the end of my career, I had very poor leadership. Uh, And I just really wanted out from under uh, those individuals. Uh, I had the opportunity to go elsewhere, go abroad, uh, do this, do that. But I didn't want to do that to the family. 
and I didn't want to disrupt. I'm, I'm very family-oriented, um, and I, I didn't want to just all of a sudden uproot everybody and let's go to wherever it would have taken me, and it could have taken me anywhere, actually. Uh, so I, it, 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 was, uh, it was difficult, so I, I left, but then I, I, again, somebody knocked on my door and they said, uh, how would you like to work with us for a couple of years and get the, a little program off the ground? I said, okay, what is it? And it's working for the, uh, the Center for Anti-Terrorism, uh, not far from Langley. And they needed someone to head up their security program, about 80 people there. Uh, so uh, I knew the director very well. He and I had worked in the agency together. We had traveled abroad together, so I knew Mike very, very well. and He knew my ability. Uh, so I, I accepted the job. And golly, after about a year and a half at this, I, I realized I was working more at that job than I was at my regular job before I had retired. And it wasn't fun. It wasn't. It was just too a lot of babysitting, a tremendous amount of babysitting. And I was used to getting on top of a thoroughbred and galloping away, rather than some old nag or or what have you that you had to train and this and that. You know, because once you get in the fast lane. It's difficult to, to jump off afterwards. Uh, so I, uh, I finally elected to just uh, push away. And, and I did. And then all of a sudden, all sorts of offers started coming at me. Uh, 30-day TDYs here and there. And, and they were starting to get quite interesting. And, and, and a lot of them really fascinating, in fact. Uh, so on July the 23rd, 2013, my wife and I uh, went to Costco and uh, did some shopping over here in Gaithersburg. And uh, there were some things that she did not find there. That, uh, and we were also members of Sam's Club, which is just a hop, skip, and a jump from Hop Costco. So on that day at about 1230, we waltzed into Costco, um, excuse me, Sam's Club. And uh, we were debating whether we should start shopping first and then grab a bite to eat because we hadn't had uh, lunch. It was about 12.30. So we elected to, to have a bite to eat. So we went back to the eatery, and Miriam is always on my side. She's, uh, she's We're holding hands, or she's always right next to me. So we went up, and we were going to order a sandwich or a salad or something. And then I noticed the place started filling up. So I said, uh, so you have lunch Grab that table over there, and just probably from here to the railing on the deck, or maybe even a little closer. I said, "Watch me grab that table and a couple of chairs before everybody takes them." So as she was walking away, I watched her, and she sat down, and I heard this loud engine of some sort. It was just uh, overpowering, and it got louder and louder, and my head turned about from here to the fireplace. And uh, it was a, a door, an emergency exit door. And everything that was noise-wise was taking my attention right to there, as well as all the people who were in line in front of me or to the side of me. And all of a sudden, these doors just blew in. They just blew out. And right behind it was this car coming at a very high rate of speed, directly right at me. I, it was. It happened in microseconds. I didn't have time to react or anything. And the next thing I knew, I'm on my back, and I'm I'm I'm, I'm in a daze. And Marion is right on top of me, and I hear people screaming and 
yelling and so on, and there's dust, and I'm lying in a pool of blood, my own blood, and there's two young men who are, um, uh, one is in the Army, one's in the Navy, and they're in the medical corps, and they're grabbing neckties and belts to put a tourniquet on this, because my main blood was done, my main arteries have been severed, and blood is just spurting everywhere. And uh, and Miriam, bless her heart, she's on top of me, and she's just crying her eyes out, and I, I, I just don't know what's going on. And the next thing I know is I'm being lifted, I'm put on a gurney, and, and I'm being rolled out, out that door, and I, off in the distance I see a helicopter, and they load me up, I have no idea where I'm going, it lifts off, and we take off, I hear all the chatter, the pilot, the co-pilot, I got a couple of medical meds working on me. They're shooting me up with morphine and so forth. And then we land on, a, on the first side of the trauma center in, uh, in Baltimore. And I can remember uh, as we landed, they're taking me out of the helicopter. And there's this, this gentleman in a white gown and a white mask, white cap, one of the surgeons. And he f- throws this flat back, plastic and he already knew who I was. He says, okay, Demas, you're all mine. We're going to take care of you. And that's all I remember. And then the following day, uh, I'm lying in bed in a very dimly lit room. I have no idea what day it is or what time of the day it may be. And I just sensed the presence of somebody in the room, and I could hear him moving around. And it was a, a doctor. And I felt a numbness in my right foot, like when your foot goes to sleep. And then I had this board inside me, in my throat. And I sort of, sort of coming out of it, and I'm getting a little panicky, and I'm saying, what in the world's going on? So I remember I could move my left foot, but I would try my right one, and it just didn't react. And then the doctor, later I thought I was a doctor, uh, ah, welcome, Mr. Chavez. You're coming out of it. Okay, just, just a minute. Let me move this. And he pulls out this thing. I don't know what it was that I had down my throat. And I couldn't talk. I couldn't speak. And my throat was just as dry as could be. And uh, and he says, uh, how do you feel? And I said, well, that's just the problem. I can't feel anything on my right side. And he says, uh, I'm sorry to me, but we had to amputate your right leg. And it just, whoa, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. And I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to think. And then uh, the first thing that came to my mind was uh, Dolores <laughs> and, uh, and her wedding. And I said to the guy, well, how am I going to walk my daughter down the aisle? <laughs> and that was... That was the, the, the most important thing on my mind. And uh, he says, don't worry, we're, we're, we're going to get you there. Everything's going to be just fine. And I just kept insisting, you know. I couldn't speak too well, so I wrote it. And, and I still had that piece of paper. You know, How am I going to walk my daughter down the aisle? Uh, so I spent, uh, I went through nine surgeries while I was there. Uh, they had to keep cleaning it out and cleaning it out. And then they finally got to a point where they could close it. 
And then I, uh, so I spent 50 some odd days uh, in trauma. And then I got moved to uh, the National Institute of Health or no, the National Rehab Hospital or something uh, down in DC. And I spent another couple of weeks or so there. And then from there, uh, they put me in the inpatient at uh, Adventist Hospital over here, uh, not too far from here. And then, uh, then I got fitted out for this prosthesis. And uh, it's been a struggle. It's uh, I, I don't have. In fact, I need to go back in and uh, have another operation. Uh, this just came up recently. Uh, my residual limb is not mended properly, and the femur has worked its way out, and it's trying to pop through. So if I walk too much right now in the current condition, it uh, will bleed. So this is this is my socket, and the, the tip of my residual limb is right here. So I'm what's called an AK above the knee. So the two types of amputations is AKBK, below the knee. Below the knee, they're amateurs. That's nothing. As long as you got that knee, you're okay. Mm -hmm. You're really okay. And there's three leading types of amputations. The most uh, common one is diabetes. And then that's followed by infection or leukemia or some cancer, something of that nature. And then third and last is uh, trauma, such as myself, getting run over as I did. So we've been at it almost four years. Uh, Still struggling, still going to physicians. Uh, I've gone through three different prosthetic uh, organizations, and I'm now dealing with one in Sterling, Virginia, who I like very, very much. Uh, and this next operation, what they're going to do, uh, Brian, is that they're completely going to redo my, my residual limb. And uh, it'll be two three-hour operations. Uh, the first one will be to open it up and go back in assess the area, make sure I have no bone infections and so forth, the femur's still okay. And then they will make an assessment to see if I have enough tissue, because I have some tissue in the back, to create what's called a flap that will come around. And then at the end of the flap, I'll have a nice finish, just like here, you know, cone-shaped, and be able to slip right into my socket without any kind of problem. This socket is kept, kept on by suction. So in the morning when I get in, I slip in, and as I force it in, I trap the air on the bottom, and that sucks me to the bottom, mm. and that's what keeps it on. Because I have such a mangled residual limb, I have all these crevices and so forth, that air has a tendency of leaking out, and sometimes I'll get up, and I, might, I don't even know it, but my leg's not on anymore. So with this new operation, uh, hopefully uh, it will create... All of that. It would help. All that. But what happened just three days ago when I went in to do my preliminary pre-op preparation and so forth, uh, I had to have a, a Doppler test done just to make sure I have no blood clots and what have you. And lo and behold, I've got a blood clot in my residual limb, so I'm now on blood thinner that I've been on for just three days. So we're going to have to wait about three months in order for the clot to dissolve and hopefully flush out. And then maybe around May, uh, we'll have the actual operation. And it will be uh, two, three-hour operations apiece. 
and I'll spend a little over a week in the hospital, possibly two, and I'll have a, a six-week recovery time here at home, and then some rehab to start all over again, learn how to walk, and uh, it's uh, probably, probably the biggest challenge of my life because uh, it's difficult. Uh, I'll be 80 years old in May, uh, and it's kind of awkward to think about learning how to walk again. <laughs> uh, but speaking of walking, you I was at your daughter's wedding and you know, I think that was one of the more touching moments that, that I've witnessed is is watching you at that wedding and um, you know how much she and her husband mean to you and uh, seeing you there and, and having you speak and uh, all of that was, was pretty magical. What what are what are like the takeaways of going through that adversity? Because you did have adversity when you were a kid. Like if I if I go back to your life, you you have you know not being able to speak, um, you know, and, and sort of the idea of not being accepted or being you know ostracized, and then you had to you know you were surrounded by people in high school who had more means than you did, and. Uh, you know, you, you, you experienced adversity throughout your life. And I'm sure, as I said earlier, I'm sure there were dangerous situations that you faced, you know, in your career. And, oh, absolutely. Um, you know, and then all the crazy stuff I did as a rodeo rider. Yeah. <laughs> stuff like that. No, it all comes from a abrupt halt and you just have to realign your life all over again. Uh, the, the good, there's good and there's bad. Uh, on the plus side, it's neat that you get to live your life over again. Because in a way, <clears throat> my former life ended. It ended. It's, I, I no longer. I I, I I I live in a two-legged world with one leg, and, and, it, and that in itself is a huge challenge. Regardless of where I go, regardless of what I do, and I have to be so extra careful. My sensitivity has just peaked beyond comprehension. I mean, I am so sensitized to everything that goes on around me. I mean, I, I can just feel it. You just become a walking radar almost. Uh, and, and sometimes you already sense it before it even happens. I can already see something coming and boom, I just stop and then boom, it happens and I avoided it. It's that kind of, uh, you're almost like a bat flying at night, you know. You just, but, you <laughs> you know grew, exactly. but, but you grew up... Uh, seeing discrimination against Mexican-Americans, yeah. which you talked about. You grew up with a sister who didn't have opportunities because of her disability. So you, you saw things and engrossed yourself in unfairness or inequality. Correct, yeah. How do you, like, and, and now you... You you experience that on a on a you say I'm I'm experiencing it on a total different plateau, but I think what helps me through the night is that my mental wisdom is so far more advanced at this age than it was in those preliminary stages of facing discrimination, not being able to speak English, and all those kinds of hurdles that I had to face. In uh, they were huge, but nothing in comparison to what they are now. And I think what makes the flight or the journey a little more easier is that uh, I, uh, I'm far more knowledgeable. Uh, I, I, I know people. Uh, uh, 
I mean, I, I keep being told that you, your life has been spared because there's something special that's still out there for you to do. Like, what is it? You know, I, I wrote a book and I loved it. I, write, I loved writing that book and I want to write another one. Uh, that's my goal. As soon as I can kind of settle down, I want to, I want to, I want to write another book. So let's, let's finish with that. So, uh, for those who haven't read your book, why don't you give us a quick teaser and then for the people that listen to this, let's see if we can get them to go buy your book and maybe there's some <laughs> other stories in there that well, we haven't hit it, on it, yet. It, it, it's uh, it, it basically my entire life story starting off in Torreon and I do it in a chronological order and that's just the kind of guy I am. I mean, I do the one, two, three, A, B, C rather than jump around all over the place. Uh, I like things very orderly and where you can just build onto it. And as you build onto it, it develops a memory, it develops a track, it develops a trail, so that you can always recall and fall back on those things. Whereas if you mix and match and do a Heinz 57, you have no idea where you've been or where you're going. So give us the name of the book and where people can buy it. The name of the book is On My Own, and you can get it on Amazon, and... Uh, and that's about it. it it's it, like, I, like I stated, it's a, it starts off in the, in the very beginning of my life, uh, May 27, 1937, when I was born in Torreon, and it ends uh, pretty much uh, about two years ago or so when I finished the book. Um, and it walks me right, it walks you right through everything that I, we've talked about and then some, all of the Archie bunkers that I've had to deal with all my life. and so on and so my entire family, my brothers, my sisters, my mother, my father, the influence, the, all the things that they uh, helped me for, with, my friends, my friends, my friends. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to have us end with, with this idea. Um, you know, I, I've said this before on this podcast, but I think there are different types of people in this world. There are people that are victims that when something bad happens to them or the cards are stacked against them, they say, why me? And that teacher uh, in high school that sort of said, oh, you're not, maybe you should be held back and not graduate. Uh, you could have said, well, why me? Yeah. But instead you said, all right, watch what I'm going to do. Yeah. And I think that is what I call a thriver. And thrivers say, all right, there's something bad that happened. All right, watch what I'm going to do. I'm going to thrive. And you had a lot stacked against you throughout your life, but we're going to be together tomorrow at your grandson's yeah. first birthday and uh, exactly, exactly. I think it's beautiful that not only are you thriving, but your family's thriving as well. Yeah. And uh, so, like, I look forward to celebrating that with you likewise, and, and likewise. seeing you continue to thrive and see what other iteration Absolutely. you've got left in the tank Absolutely. years. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Dimas. Oh, thank you. Thanks. I appreciate it. Wow. So I hope you were able to stay with us through the end there and, and really – hear Dimas's story and his story is still ongoing as you can hear he still has some challenges that he has to deal with especially physically and he is taking those on head on but there's so much to unpack here uh, as we were walking out of Dimas's house he said to me oh Brian I forgot to tell you about flying planes and I got my pilot's license and the guy really is a risk taker on so many levels yet with his life 
And with his family, he also was just so solid and steady and there for them. And he has a humility about him that I would imagine many that serve our CIA have. I would imagine it's a prerequisite because they aren't allowed to get into specifics and details as far as what they're doing and when they're doing it. So I just have so much admiration for Dimas's humility. His story is also just so fascinating. And we often talk about the American dream and Dimas truly does represent the American dream. Here was somebody who didn't speak English until he was six years old and then ends up going and working for one of the highest intelligence agencies in the world. And it's just a fascinating story. Dimas also, you could feel across the microphone his love for people and having a personality and connecting with friends and family. And he often said throughout our conversation that he is still in touch with people that he's known for 60 years. And I think it speaks to his character. And that word character is really what sticks out for me when it comes to Dimas. Here is somebody who had the odds stacked against him. He had the chips against him when it came to having success in this country. And all along the way, he did his very best. He put his head down. He worked hard. He worked smart. He learned. And he was also honest. He had great integrity. He turned down a job that would have been a dream job for many people, but he didn't think that he had the prerequisite skills to be successful at that job. He just did what was right in helping his sister who had Down syndrome and didn't think about what he could get out of it and instead just did it because it was the right thing to do. So much of life is about just doing the right thing. And Dimas, throughout his life, just tried to do the right thing and tried to serve his people, his country, his family, his friends. And he's really a servant leader. And I think there's so much that can be learned from those that service others. And, that those, and those that are part of something that is, are bigger than themselves. So I appreciate Dimas coming on the show, coming on the podcast, being open, being honest. And for me, one of the big takeaways is this notion of stay in your lane, but still chase your dreams. And don't ever settle for being mediocre, but also understand that there's value in staying in your lane. So with that, I'd like to conclude this podcast with Dimas Chavez. And for all of you listening, I appreciate the support. I look forward to talking to you again real soon.